Well, welcome. My name is Ben. I'm the vicar here at St. Thomas's. I have the privilege of leading this growing church family. It is great to have you with us this evening. If you've got a Bible in front of you, can you turn it to John chapter 1, please, and flick through to verse 29? And we're going to be reading from verses 29 to 42. And what I'd like you to do to start with is just to read that in your pews together. So there may maybe in twos or threes, just read it to one another. I'll give you a couple of minutes to do that. And then just with your neighbor, just say something that strikes you about the Bible passage, and then we'll get stuck into tonight's talk. So John chapter 1, verses 29 to 42. A couple of minutes to read that together, and then we'll crack on with the teaching. We're a relatively um, new church community here. We're a church plant. We launched on October the 6th, so this is like our 12th or 13th Sunday. And I'm going to be speaking tonight tonight about how we can see Newcastle changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, to set that in the context of our journey of planting St. Thomas's, I'm going to play us our vision video um, again, just so that we can remember who it is that God has called us to be here in Newcastle. So do turn your attention to the screen. Now that is a pretty big vision. And I don't think that any of us here tonight are here by accident. Those of you that have joined us since we launched on October the 6th, you've all been called to play your part in this vision. And in our readings today, and actually in our readings for the next few weeks, we've called this little sermon series that we're doing, Salt and Light, because we're going to be reading about how we as individuals and as a church family together can have an impact on the lives of those around us and on this fantastic city that God has called us to. And it will culminate in about a month's time with us looking at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus teaching on salt and light. Now today we're looking at Jesus um, at the events immediately Ha- the, the events that immediately happen after Jesus's baptism. And you've read some of these verses together in your pews already tonight. John chapter 1, verses 29 to 42. And if you missed last week as we looked at Jesus's baptism, you can catch up on our website or through Spotify or through your favorite podcast provider. And um, what we learned last week was that what is true for Jesus in his baptism but baptism is true for us in our baptism. And we saw that as Jesus was affirmed by God, the Father, before he did anything, before he did any public ministry, before he healed anybody, before he raised anybody from the dead, the Father spoke over Jesus, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And we were thinking about how that is also true for those of us that are in Christ. That before we do anything, The Father speaks over us, you are my son, you are my daughter whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Now at the heart of our passage tonight is Jesus saying to two um, of John the Baptist's friends, come and see. Come and be in relationship with me and see that I will fulfill all of your deepest desires. Everything that you long for is fulfilled in me. So as we go through this passage tonight, we're going to see four things. Who Jesus is, why we should invite others to follow him, how we can invite others to follow him, and the effects that sharing Jesus has on other people. So here it is, John chapter 1, 29 to 42. I'm going to read it out loud over us. The next day after Jesus' baptism, 
baptism, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas which translated is Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Great, there's four Anglicans in tonight. So these first few verses from the reading that we're looking at tonight, verses 29 to 34, in these verses, John the Baptist basically gives us a blueprint for the, for the kind of things that we need to be sharing when we talk about who Jesus is. Now notice that the first thing that John says about Jesus is that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, for those of you that are new to faith, new to church, or just checking out who Jesus is, this might be a slightly odd thing you might think for John to say about Jesus, who is supposed to be God and the Messiah. But for those listening to John, this was actually really, really good news. The people that John was speaking to had been preoccupied with sin removal, basically getting away, getting rid of all the bad stuff in their lives since the beginning of creation, since the fall, since Adam and Eve messed up in the Garden of Eden. And so they believed that you could basically atone for sin by some kind of sacrifice, killing an animal or a sheep or a lamb or a pigeon or, or something like that. Now, this was such a big deal to the people of God because they knew that they were not perfect. But they knew that to be in relationship with God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, they had to be perfect to be in relationship with him because he cannot exist with imperfection. And so when John the Baptist says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, he is saying that Jesus is the way to be in relationship with God. He is saying that Jesus is going to deal with the problem of sin, with the problem of evil, with the problem of all the stuff that's wrong in the world once and for all. The original hearers of John would have, when they heard Jesus being the Lamb of God, they would have thought about the Exodus story about how when God's people were fleeing slavery and oppression in Egypt, they were told to sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on their doorposts, and God's judgment would pass over them, hence Passover lamb. Or they would think about the story of Abraham and Isaac and how God provided a lamb to die in Isaac's place. 
They would have thought about Isaiah 53 and about the prophecies of God's anointed one being led like a lamb to the slaughter. What John the Baptist is saying is that because of Jesus, we don't have to pay for our wrongdoings anymore. Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus is freedom. Jesus is the way to eternal life, but it's going to cost him everything. Now, the reason that Jesus can do this becomes clear in verse 30. Jesus, um, we learn from John, John basically says that Jesus is God. There's this quite complicated sentence, isn't there? If you look at verse 30, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It sounds a little bit like a cryptic riddle, but it's not. John is basically saying that even though Jesus appeared in, you know, first century Palestine, Israel preaching after John had started his preaching ministry, Jesus actually came before John the Baptist because Jesus had always existed. Jesus pre-existed John. Jesus had always existed. Now remember, this happens immediately after Jesus' baptism, where we see this amazing picture of the Trinity, of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is revealed to be the second person of the Trinity. John knows that Jesus really is God. In fact, John's gospel opens, doesn't it, by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The reason that Jesus can deal with the sin of the whole world, the reason that Jesus can be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is because he is God himself. God himself has come to set us free. Now, thirdly, John believes that Jesus really is the Messiah because of the sign of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. In fact, Jesus takes the sign of the Spirit to reveal who he is. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus starts his preaching ministry, he opens up a scroll from Isaiah and starts by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. Now, all of this is why John declared in verse 34 that he believed that Jesus was God's chosen one. Now, this is the good news that John has been sharing for a while, that there's a God in heaven who loves us so much that he's going to come and rescue his people and set them free once and for all. Now, in these next few verses, we basically see John put this testimony that he believes about Jesus into action as two of his friends begin to follow Jesus. And we see the impact that the good news of Jesus has upon their families. Having become convinced, having John become convinced of who Jesus really is, he can't but help share the good news of Jesus with everyone. Let's look at verse 35. It's the next day and John is with two of his friends, two of his disciples, as he often is. And John sees Jesus approaching and he just declares to his friends, look, it's the Lamb of God. And then in verse 37, John's friends leave him and begin following Jesus instead. Now, these are a fascinating few verses and just a few things from me to note. Firstly, John was just going about his normal everyday life when he told his friends who Jesus is. There's nothing unusual about this particular day. 
John had been gathering disciples for a while. He'd been teaching them for a while. He'd have spent time with these two disciples day in, day out. And yet he shares his faith in Jesus with them, just as if it's normal. Now, sharing our faith with other people should be just that, normal. It should just be part of our every day. Sharing Jesus does not have to be an event. It doesn't have to be some like amazing evangelistic conference. It doesn't have to be an event in a stadium, although it can be those things. It should just be the natural overflow. Sharing Jesus should just be the natural overflow of somebody who loves Jesus and knows who he is. Now, sometimes there's this rather unhelpful view in the church that we should basically, basically leave sharing Jesus up to the professionals. We should leave it to the vicars or we should leave it to the evangelists or the Nicky Gumbles or the Billy Grahams or whoever it may be. Well, let me just tell you a story. Albert McCain was a 24-year-old farmer who had recently come to faith in Jesus Christ. He was so full of enthusiasm that he wanted one of his friends to come to church with him to hear about Jesus. However, his friend was just more interested in chasing girls. Eventually, he persuaded this young man to come to church with him by asking him to drive him to church. Albert's friend was spellbound by what he heard in church that night. He kept going back to hear more until he eventually repented and believed. Albert's friend was a man named Billy, Billy Graham. It was 1934. Since then, Billy Graham has led thousands, maybe millions of people to faith in Jesus. We can't all be like Billy Graham, but we all can be like Albert McCain, bringing our friends to faith in Jesus. In other words, you can do this. You can be the one who invites your friends and family to come and see who Jesus is. You can be the ones who invite your friends to church. And lots of you have been doing this since we launched in October. Just seeing your friends come and experience something of this church family and hearing something of the good news of Jesus. We saw that particularly over our carol services. And I just want to say, keep doing it. It's such an amazing example to all of us of how we can just share Jesus as part of our natural, normal, every day. When I was a first year student at Sheffield University, I lived in a flat with 14 other lads and none of them were followers of Jesus at all. And I came to university full of enthusiasm and wanting to share my faith with anything and anybody that moved. Um, and I lived in a halls of residence with about 1,000 other people. It's about the size, for those of you that are living in Castle Leases, similar kind of size, actually built by the same guy who um, designed prisons and built these two halls of residences. But anyway, there you go. And um, I didn't know what to do about sharing my faith, except that I knew that I really wanted to do it. And so me and another Christian friend in my halls of residence, we just started an alpha course in a nearby coffee shop. And we invited lots and lots of people. Most of them said no. Most of them said no, but some of them said yes. And on that alpha course that was just run by us two very inexperienced first year students, we saw about 40 people give their lives to Jesus Christ. Some of my Christian friends today are people that gave their lives to Jesus on that alpha. Most people said no, but those that responded, some of them Jesus saved. Evangelism should just be part of our normal every day. Now, the second thing we see just in these three verses, verses 35 to 37, is that Jesus is interested in the ones and twos. 
often when you hear vicars or church leaders talk about sharing your faith, I think some of us feel a pressure that we've got to suddenly start to share our faith with thousands of people. Like if we're living in a flat of 14 people, we must share our faith with every single one of them right now. Or if we're living in a halls of residence with four, five, six hundred people, that we must go and share our faith with all four, five, six hundred of them right now. Now, these verses can seem insignificant, but they're not. They had a profound, these events in these verses had a profound effect on a whole family's life. But this was not a mass revival meeting. This was just John talking to two of his friends about who he thought Jesus was. But these two went on to have a huge impact throughout the world. It's ones and twos that change the world. It's not necessarily crowds. Sure, they were the first two to follow Jesus, but fast forward 2,000 years and Jesus has 2.1 billion followers all over the world today. Just over a century ago, there were hardly any followers of Jesus in China. Fast forward 100, 100 years there are now more Christians estimated, more Christians following Jesus in China than there are people following Jesus in Europe. I think of my friend Rick, who did live with me in that um, flat um, of 14 of us in that, in that halls of residence. And Rick was my closest friend at university. He was the first person that I met when we were dragging our suitcases into our, into our halls. Um, and his mum, and I got chatting that first day and she found out that I was a Christian and she told me, don't try and share your faith with Rick because he's the most atheist person I've ever met and you will not stand any chance um, of, of him becoming a Christian. In our third, Rick, by the way, would never come to Alpha. I invited him in my first year, first term, second, first year, second term and first year, third term and all the way through second year. He wasn't having any of it. In our third year, Rick gave his life to Christ. He started reading the Bible with me. He's, he did an alpha um, and he had some, I prayed with him once and he saw Jesus heal him in the most amazing way. He now works in business, has impacted loads of other people with the good news of Jesus. He did a short spell as a youth worker, as a student worker. He's now on the leadership team of his local church in Colchester and is bringing up his young children to follow Jesus. All because one life was impacted. It's ones and twos that change the world. Thirdly, we're reminded that we should share the good news of Jesus because it really is the best news ever. I mean, John's friends thought this, didn't, didn't, didn't they? They immediately left John and began following Jesus. Why? Because what John was sharing, if true, really, really is life-changing. Now, John's friends, these two disciples of his, would have been waiting their whole lives for this. They'd have heard John teaching that the Messiah was coming. They'd have grown up reading the Old Testament scriptures, knowing that God was going to send somebody who would set God's people free. And then John points out Jesus and says, he's the one. Now, I think that deep down, everybody is waiting for exactly the same things as John's two friends, even if they don't articulate it in the same way. I think that deep down, everybody is searching for freedom, for meaning, for purpose, for significance, for forgiveness, for redemption. 
The problem with us human beings is that we look for it in all the wrong kinds of places. We look for it in work or in money or sex or beauty or social media. The problem with that is that as we, as we look for meaning and significance and freedom in those things, we just become slaves to them. And they just end up eating all of our time. We end up questioning whether we're really loved. If we put our identity in sex or relationships, we just want more and more and more because it will never truly satisfy. Jesus is the only way to freedom. It's only the good news of Jesus that offers freedom and forgiveness and joy. So John shares the good news of Jesus with his friends. And pretty soon after he shares this, it has a pretty remarkable effect on their life. So we see them go through this little shift, don't we, John's friends, from in their understanding of who Jesus is. So when they first start following Jesus, notice what they call Jesus. They call him teacher. Even though John has been saying that he's the Messiah, that he's God's chosen one, that he's the one who's going to set the whole of the world free, John's friends still call him teacher. But that's okay. Now, Jesus notices these two people following him, and he basically says to them, what do you want? What is it that you are looking for? Now, I don't think that at this point they know exactly what it is they're looking for. And so they say to Jesus, well, Jesus, tell us where you're staying. In other words, give us your address. We want to, you know, give us your address. We want to come and spend some time with you. We want to eat with you. We want to get to know you. At this point, they still haven't twigged that Jesus is more than just a teacher, but Jesus is going to show them. And so Jesus responds by saying in verse 39, come and you will see. Now, in this simple sentence are two things. There's an invitation and there's a promise. The invitation, of course, is come. Jesus invites these two men to his house to eat with him, to spend time with him. He chooses them. Now, Jesus' invitation to all of us today is come. He chooses you. Out of all of the people that he could have chosen, he looked at you and said, I want you. With your flaws, even with your imperfections, he looked at you and chose you. Now, out of this invitation to come flows a promise that if you come, you will see. Now, what Jesus did not mean here was that if they came, they would just see where he was staying. That if they came, they would see what kind of meal that he would provide. Jesus meant that if they came and spent time with him, they would see that through him, through Jesus, the whole of the world would make sense. If they came, they would, say that they would see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They would see that they could stop working for their own salvation. They could stop running around and stressing and trying to fix everything themselves. And they would see that Jesus has done everything possible on the, or is going to do everything possible on the cross and in rising to new life to give them freedom 
as a gift if they would repent and believe. Now, these next two verses show us that they really did see who Jesus was. Andrew was one of the two who had started following Jesus that day. And he was so convinced of who Jesus was. He was so convinced that John the Baptist was right about who he said Jesus is, that he rushed to find his brother, his brother Simon. And notice what Andrew says to Simon. Verse 31, verse 41, sorry. We have found the Messiah. The pennies dropped for Andrew. Jesus is not just a teacher. Jesus is not just a philosopher. Jesus is not just an inspirational man. Jesus is the Messiah, the saviour of the world. The shift for Andrew has taken place. Now, most people in the world are where Andrew is at at the beginning of our Bible passage today. If you speak to most people about who they think Jesus is, they'd say that Jesus is an amazing teacher. Some would say that he's the most amazing, philo- he's the most amazing philosopher that has ever lived. Some would say that he's the most amazing spiritual leader that has ever lived. Now, all of those things, of course, are true. But Jesus is so much more than that. Do you think that if Andrew thought that Jesus was just a good teacher, that he'd have gone to his brother with the same level of urgency? You need to come and meet this man. No, of course he wouldn't. But as soon as Andrew realises who Jesus truly is, he knows that he has to share the good news of Jesus with all of those people that he loves, with his friends, with his family, with his brother. And so we read in verse 42 this very simple sentence, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. A former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, um, he wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John and um, the story goes that he wrote this whole commentary of the Gospel of John on his knees, just crying out to God that God would speak to him as he wrote this commentary. When he got to this very simple sentence in verse 42, he simply wrote this in his commentary, that somebody bringing somebody to Jesus is the greatest service that one person can render another. The greatest service that one person can render another. Now we don't hear much about Andrew in the rest of the Gospels, except when we do hear about Andrew in the rest of the Gospels, he's usually bringing somebody to Jesus. Andrew's had this amazing, life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, he can't help but share Jesus with everybody. So Simon um, comes to Jesus with Andrew. And when he comes, I want us to notice what happens. So Simon arrives, he appears in front of Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus does is that Jesus gives Simon a new name. Jesus gives Simon a new identity. And Jesus says to Simon, from now on, Simon, you're going to be called Peter. Because you're going to be the rock on which I'm going to build my family, my community, the church. Now, this name for Peter is actually pretty ironic because Peter means rock. It means strong. 
it means stable. And for those of you that know, not strong and stable in the Theresa May kind of way, by the way, just for as soon as I said it, I thought, I've just, anyway, it doesn't matter. It means strong and it means rock. Now, this is slightly ironic because in all of the Gospels, Peter was anything but rock-like. Peter was impulsive. Peter was irrational. He was unstable. He made so many mistakes. At this point, Jesus, at this point, Peter isn't any of these things that Jesus is saying that he is. But over time, Jesus gradually makes Peter into the rock on which he can build his community, his family, the church. Now, the same, of course, is true for you and me. When we came to Jesus, we got given a new identity. When Jesus looks at me, believe it or not, he says that I am holy. That's my identity, even though I make mistakes all of the time. When Jesus looks at me, he says that I am loved, even though there's lots of people in the world that don't love me. Jesus gives us this identity and he calls it out of us and he turns us into who he is making us to be. And so the same is true for you. Jesus looks at you and he knows all the lies that have been spoken over you and he replaces them with his truth. For those of you that feel that you are ugly and that nobody could ever love you, Jesus speaks over you that you are beautiful. For those of you that feel that you'll never be any good at anything in life because that's what you were told by somebody as a child, Jesus speaks over you that he's calling you to play your part in building his kingdom on earth in Newcastle today. For those of you that believe that your acceptance, your affirmation comes through what you achieve at university or at work because that's what's been drilled into you, Jesus looks at you and says that he loves you in spite of all of that stuff. He loves you because you have been found in him, because you've put your trust in Jesus. God speaks his affirmation over you before you do anything. Come and see. Now the invitation for all of us tonight is for us to play our part in inviting people to come and see. To issue to this fantastic city that God has called us to, the invitation to everybody, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done, come. Come, there's a God who loves you so much that he will come to the earth, hang on a cross, rise to new life so that you could know freedom. Come. Even if you don't think that church is for you, even if you don't think that you're holy enough, that you couldn't possibly fit into church, come and you'll find out that all of us think that. But Jesus is transforming us into his likeness. Come and you will see that there's a God in heaven who loves you. Church family, this is not just for people that think of themselves as evangelists. This is not just for the church staff team. This is not just for people on God TV. It's not, we don't leave sharing Jesus to Christian conferences. All of us can do it. It's just part of a normal, everyday, 
overflow of following Jesus Christ. Just as the band come up, let me um, tell you a story. Um, I was invited to church for the first time, received an invite to church by my next door neighbour when I was 11. Um, he was a man at that point in his 60s and he was the, um, he basically was the, well, the director of worship at a church in the town that I grew up in, in Beverly. And he simply knocked, he, he moved in next door to us and he knocked on my mum and dad's door with his wife and they came over for a cup of tea. And I, at the time, was 11. My um, middle brother was 10. My youngest brother was nine. And he just asked my mum and dad if he could take me and my two little brothers to church with him. And so we went. First Sunday, he was the organist, so we sat in the organ loft, the equivalent of that space up there. Second Sunday, we went and we put on these funny choir robes and dressed up to process in with the choir. Beverly Minster, it was a very important church. Third week, we went to the choir practice on the Tuesday and again back to church on the Sunday. And from that moment, pretty much every Sunday, I was to be found in church. The penny would drop a few years later that Jesus really is who he says he is. My mum and dad would start going to church regularly. Mom actually, my mum actually got ordained just um, three years ago. My dad now chairs um, the equivalent of the church council at the church that he worships at. A whole family's life transformed by the invitation of one man to come and see. In our vision video, we talk about the effect that this church had on the city back in the 1800s. There's a plaque which is actually hidden behind all of our um, gear at the minute, which sits on the wall, which is um, a little historical plaque about what happened in the early 1800s. A pair of Anglican ministers, um, a guy called Richard Clayton and a guy called Robert Wansey, turned up at St. Thomas's, and the congregation was very small and unstable, say the history books. But they had this just passion to share the good news of Jesus with the city of Newcastle. Within just a few years, this church was the most attended church in the Northeast. 2,400 people, 2,398 was the average in 1851, with just under 1,000 naught to 18 year olds in here every single Sunday. God has done it before. He can do it again.